0: We're going to be considering Jude, the book of Jude, the short uh, letter that Jude wrote tonight. So if you'd like to open your Bible to Jude, we'll be looking at that. But while while we are thinking about that and turning there, I would like you to just start thinking about what you know about Africa. And you've already seen on the video uh, some of what's going on. Uh, But just setting that aside... Uh, The average person, if you say, tell me about Africa, the needs in Africa, immediately you're going to hear things like, oh, there's tremendous poverty. That's right. HIV, AIDS, oh, that's that's absolutely right. Disease, yes, a lot of disease. Uh, Dirty water, yes, a lot of dirty water. Broken down infrastructure, yes, that's right. Lots of widows and orphans, amen. That all describes Africa. And those are the things that make our headlines. But then say, talk about the spiritual conditions in Africa. And then people are going to say, oh, we've heard that there's just a tremendous flow of people into the church. That's true. Uh, Statistics that predate my first trip in 1998. My first trip was 1998. Statistics that predate that is God is adding 20,000 people to the church every day on the continent of Africa. That statistic is still being shared today, and it predates 1998. Now, you start doing the math, and that's a lot of people. And one of the statistics is that, that and I mentioned this on the video, 48.4% of the continent claim to be Christian. So we said, say, oh, there's a great harvest field, and people need to be led to Christ, and they're just waiting to hear the gospel. And some of that is true. But it's not quite as white as we would think it is, just because, and we'll talk about that a little bit, the gospel that is being preached. So what should the focus, with all that in mind, what should the focus be for missions on the continent of Africa? Again, you ask that question, and immediately you start, what comes right to the forefront immediately is humanitarian needs, medical, water, Wells, schools, hospitals, and all of that is true. But consider this. In the last 60 years, one trillion dollars of aid has been spent on the continent of Africa. One trillion dollars in 60 years. And yet today, there are twice as many people living on a dollar a day than even 25 years ago the aid is not making things any better because the problem in Africa is not primarily a humanitarian aid need or problem it's a spiritual problem it's a spiritual problem and those things just are not making the headlines and my first trip January of 1998 You've probably heard this as well. One of the first things I was told was, Steve, the church in Africa is a mile wide and an inch deep. I'm not sure it's a mile wide, just because of the gospel that's being preached there. There's a lot of people who think they're saved, and they are not, because they've responded to a false gospel. An inch deep? Maybe. But that was the statement. It's a mile wide and an inch deep. A missionary, and it's the missionary that was quoted on the video, that said that Satan has hijacked the church in Africa. In that same interview that I had with him, I said, Dick, are things getting any better? He said, no, in fact, they're getting worse. And he said that in Africa, Christianity in Africa, Christians in Africa, you know, we still primarily follow the traditional religions, not Christianity. So even those who call themselves Christians are still following their traditional worldview of witchcraft, animism, ancestor worship, because they've not been taught anything else. Then, on my second trip in August of 1998, I was in—I was teaching a course, and. In the midst of that week, and and I don't remember the context. The context isn't important. I can remember one student raising his hand and saying, Steve, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in Africa is the Christian goes to the witch doctor at night. Now you think about that, and, 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 and it sounds humorous, but it really speaks to the situation in Africa. They haven't given up the traditional worldview and the traditional religions. They just bring it with them into the church. And that's what we're dealing with there. We, we, talk, we call that syncretism, the blending of Christianity and traditional religions and put it together. About this time, after a couple of trips to Africa, I thought that there's about this much Bible and this much tradition. No, it's about this much tradition and this much Bible. So as I continued to go back, and, and I've been there 40 times now, 40 trips to Africa... As I've continued to go back, of course, my understanding has grown and grown. In February of 2009, I was in a church with a very good pastor. He's an educated guy. He's he's going through seminary online right now, working for his master's degree. He's our coordinator in the the country of Uganda. And I preached in his church. And after the sermon, he got up and, and held this baby for a baby dedication Service looked at the parents and asked the parents, do you promise not to introduce this child to witchcraft? This is a good church and, and and a good pastor. And I said afterwards, Hillary, what was that all about? And he said, it's so much ingrained into our culture and into our lifestyle that if you don't address it directly, they will just bring it with them, figuring that they'll use some, some uh, witchcraft principles to get their child off to a good start. Get them off on the right step. So again, these are the kind of things that that I've heard and was hearing over the years. Another location I was told that Christians still visit mediums in an attempt to contact their ancestors for advice. My daughter a few years ago went with me and was teaching women um, one of her lectures is on the names of God, a, a very powerful lecture. When you look at the names of God and the meaning of those names. And at the end of that lecture, she asked him, she said, Ladies, how do you decide what to name your children? First response, our ancestors come back, tell us what to name our children. This is a group of supposedly Christian women. So after 40 trips, being in seven or eight countries, Close to 60 seminars, training over 2,500 pastors, attending numerous churches, scores of conversations with pastors and missionaries, my conclusion is the church here in America needs to become very intentional about contending earnestly for the faith, not just here, actually not just Africa. But around the world. We need to be intentional in the mission field. See, again, the emphasis, and you listen to missionaries, the emphasis is humanitarian needs. We've got widows, we've got orphans, we've got water projects, we need schools. And all of that is right. But how many of them have stood up before you and you've heard them say, men and women, there is spiritual poverty on the continent of Africa. Satan is taking the church down a dead, a dead end road, a blind alley. False teachers fill the pulpits and the church in Africa is impotent. And we need to do something about it. How often have you heard that? Maybe one time. That's tonight. And I really believe that the church in America needs to become very intentional about contending earnestly for the faith by proclaiming truth, not only proclaiming truth, but also by exposing and opposing error, heresy, and false teaching that has taken over the pulpits of Africa. You see, so often we think about contending for the faith as just preach truth, preach truth, preach truth, preach truth, preach truth. truth. That's half of it. We're also called to expose air. And we need to remember that as well. We do it graciously, if possible, but that's got to be part of it as well. So we open to the book of Jude. And in Jude, our verse, we're going to be looking at more than just verse 3. But in verse 3, I know you're familiar with this verse. Jude is getting ready to write this, this letter, write this letter to, about our common salvation. He says, Beloved, verse 3, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, what a glorious letter that would have been, to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary. Uh, probably in in between the, 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 the spaces there, he's saying the Holy Spirit stopped me in my tracks. And I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing to you, that you contend earnestly for the faith, which is once for all handed down to the saints. We need to be intentional, I believe with all my heart, about contending for the faith. Because like I said just a few minutes ago, it's all about biblical authority. And if the enemy is successful in wiping away biblical authority, we have nothing to stand on, so we need to be contending for the faith. And I think there's at least three reasons that we need to be contending for the faith. The first one is because contending earnestly for the faith is the church's call; it defines the church. In First Timothy chapter three, verse fifteen, when Paul was writing to his his young disciple, uh, he wrote to him in verse chapter three, verse. 15, in case I am delight, delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth. It's the call of the church, it's the purpose of the church. It defines the church. The church is the pillar and the support of truth. I look here and I see this post. There's a pillar. What's the pillar doing? It's holding up the ceiling. The ceiling is the truth. That post is the church. And the church is the pillar and support of truth. We as a church need to be holding truth high, exposing truth, preaching truth, and confronting error. The pillar and support of truth. Pilate asked the question in John 18 38. He said, Well, what is truth? And how did Jesus answer it? You know that. John 17 17 in his his great prayer, he said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The church is the pillar and support of the Word of God. That is our function. That is our call. I love this verse in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it's, it's, it's a verse that is so easy to read over and not really see what Paul is writing here. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it is, the word of God. Now stop there you don't need anybody to preach at you regarding this. Your pastor preaches this at you. But think about it. How many people take this book and say, yeah, this is the word of God, but treat it like it's the word of man. They don't teach it. I like to say that there's so many many pastors around today that are using a few scriptures to illustrate their stories rather than the other way around. And we say, yes, this is the Word of God, but do we live by it? Do we teach it? Do we proclaim it? Or do we just give lip service to it and and go on our way? And that's the the message that we're trying to get across in Africa, saying, men, this is the Word of our Creator. This is the communication, the revelation of the one that spoke the word into existence. Do you think maybe we ought to listen, read, study, teach, obey that revelation? And to think about the creator of the universe took the time to c- communicate a revelation, inspire it, protect it, and pass it on and then to then to have us ignore it. And yes, so many are. The church is the pillar and the support of truth. Again, another verse that you're very, very familiar with. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to divide the soul from the spirit. That is so significant. I can remember doing my master's work, and they said... Write, do a study on the soul and the spirit, and then write a paper. You know what? Not even the greatest theologians can are positive what the difference is between the soul and the spirit. It's hard to, it's, it's, it's hard to draw the line. Where do you draw the line? Between the soul and the spirit. And yet the word of God is so sharp it has no problems making that distinction and it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I love that. Because when a pastor has a congregation, he doesn't need to worry about your thoughts. Doesn't need to worry about your motives. He knows that if he is preaching the word of God to you just turning the word of God loose, if there needs to be conviction, there will be conviction. It's living and it's active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Second 2 Timothy 3.16, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We won't take time to go over all those. You've heard it. You know what that's saying. The point is, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that covers everything that's significant. And the Word of God is profitable for all of that. And we try to help the pastors understand in Africa, you don't need anything else in your ministry. And it's able, verse 17, it's able to equip the man of God for every good work. See, that's another thing that we point out. In the Scripture, in the New Testament, there's only one person who is referred to as man of God, and that's Timothy. And he was a pastor. And so I think this is directly speaking to the pastor, but when you broaden out the meaning, anyone who is is involved in service for the Lord, this applies to him. But we say, pastor... Man of God, the Word of God equips you for every good work. We talk about having a vehicle. When the vehicle breaks down, what do we do? We take it to a mechanic. Why do we take it to a mechanic? He knows how to diagnose what is wrong. He's got the tools, the equipment, and the parts to fix it. And I say, Pastor, you have only one piece of equipment. It's the Word of God. And the Word of God equips you for every good work. That's all we need. That's all these men need. So we just open it up. We teach it all week long. Paul was intentional about opposing heresy. I don't think there's any question about that. The great passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Again, yeah, I know I'm preaching to the choir. But he says, The weapons of our warfare, verse 4, are not of flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What are those fortresses? We hear people coming around and talking about strongholds and fortresses, and the devil's got a stronghold, and the devil's got a fortress in your life, and you need to be delivered from that. What's Paul talking about? He's saying we are destroying what? Speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought about God obedience to Christ. You see it's the lies of Satan that, that are used to build those fortresses to keep people captive. And that's what I was talking about on the video when I said that the church in Africa is being held captive to the lies of Satan. The traditional religion, traditional worldview, the false gospel that they are being taught, the health and wealth gospel that they are being taught. All of these lives are keeping the church of Africa in bondage. And Paul says that we are tearing those speculations down. We are are destroying those fortresses. And we're doing it by taking every thought captive, every philosophy. We are speaking to all of those speculations. We're destroying those speculations. And everything raised up against the knowledge of God. And I believe with all my heart that the church needs to follow Paul's example in the mission field. Because the truth is not getting through. The emphasis is in so many other places. Don't address just the physical needs, but we need to be addressing the spiritual needs as well. And I'm not talking about just the gospel. I'm talking about the whole gamut. It's interesting, One, one of the other You know, missionaries always have their sermons that they preach. Another one that I've just put together recently is the overlooked participle in the Great Commission. Doesn't that sound technical? You know, in in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, there's only one verb make disciples. That's it. That's what we're called to do. Make disciples. How? Go and baptize. That's what we hear. Just go and and lead people to Christ and baptize them and plant churches. We're helping to fulfill the Great Commission. No, you aren't. You're helping. But what's the third participle? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. We don't talk about that part of it. There is very little or no discipleship going on. What I see, where I go, it's all about evangelism. It's all about church planning. But we need to be doing that third participle as well. So the church needs to contend earnestly for the faith and missions because it defines the church. Secondly, because contending for the faith is the pastor's call. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1. Paul writes, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The pastor is to be a steward of God's word. Pastors here, pastors in Africa, are to be stewards of God's word. What is a steward? A caretaker. Someone who takes care of someone else's possession. In the New Testament, it was very often uh, a very uh, respected slave that would take care of the other slaves and manage the other slaves. But we're talking about just someone who takes care of someone else's possession. And what I do is I, I say, men, here's a watch. Let's say this is the most expensive watch ever created, ever designed, ever built. I give it to you to take care of it. I come back a number of years later and I say, what condition is it in? Ah, it's in perfect condition. You've been a good steward. How much more, how much more precious is the word of God to say, you are also a steward of this. And you're going to have to give an account of how you have handled this in your ministry. How are you doing? Pastors are to be stewards of the word of God. Paul twice exhorted Timothy to guard the treasure in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, he says, O Timothy, guard what hath been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. 2nd Timothy chapter 1 verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who indwells us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. What's that treasure? The word of God. Guard it. That is the call of the pastor. In Acts chapter 20 verses 28 and 29, Paul writes to the elders there he says be on guard for yourself and for all the flock who is among you knowing that after my departure savage wolves will come in not sparing the flock these are the false teachers the false apostles that followed him around and a pastor is to protect and guard the portion of God's flock that has been placed under his care from those savage wolves it's part of his call to contend for the faith to protect this sheep from the false doctrine and the false teachers. When Paul was leaving Titus in Crete, he said, Titus, one thing that you are to do, you are to both exhort and refute with sound doctrine. Not just exhort in sound doctrine, but also refute those who contradict. The role of the pastor is not just preaching and teaching truth, but to confront and uh, refute those who are contradicting the truth. So it's part of the pastor's call. Now in, in Africa, pastors don't know the truth. And how can you contend, how can you protect the flock if you don't know the truth? And that's why it is so crucial that we are teaching them the truth. I hear all the time, well, send them to school. That's what Bible schools are for. I know this missionary. He's, he's working at a school, and I'm for all those schools if they're preaching and teaching truth, which many are not. But listen to this statistic. 2.2 million evangelical churches in the world. This statistic goes back a few years. I think it was 2004, actually, I think. No no, no, longer ago than that. 2.2 million evangelical churches in the world. 85% of the leadership is untrained. It's higher than that in Africa. 7,000 additional leaders needed every day for the growing evangelical church in the world. And if every school, every institution... That was training or that is training church leadership for the evangelical church was functioning at 120% capacity. Everyone, 120% capacity. Less than 10% of the untrained would be able to get into those schools. Schools are touching the tip of 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 the tip in Africa probably 90% of the pastors are untrained and probably 90% of those 90% will never find their way into a school so where are they getting their training that's why seminars and what we're doing is unique and very very important these guys go to a lot of seminars and and I ask them all the time what's different About our seminars. And they say, what's different about your seminar is that you teach the Bible. We come to seminars and the Bible never opens. The Bible sits over here and we read the author's notes. And he says that in ours, we just studied the Bible all week long. And that's exactly what we do. So we need to be contending earnestly For the faith. I had one pastor say to me one time, Steve, I have learned more in four days at your seminar than I learned in four years at Protestant University of Bible and Theology. That shows you what the need is there. So we need to be very intentional about contending earnestly for the faith because it's the church's purpose, it's the pastor's call, but most importantly, because truth is under attack. Truth is under attack everywhere. Back to the book of Jude, the letter of Jude, verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So the false teachers... Are finding their way into the church. In verse 11, he says, "...woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when when, when they feast with you without fear." Caring for themselves. Clouds without water carried along by the winds. Autumn trees without fruit, double, doubly dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. couple of observations here. They embed themselves into the churches. They're right here. Maybe not right here, but you know what I mean. They're in our midst. They're in the church. And they might be making their way through the congregation, sharing their own views, sharing their own ideas, sharing their own theology. You don't even know. And Jude warns us about them. They're, They're embedded in our churches. What's their motive? They do it for pay. All throughout Scripture, whenever it talks about false teachers, it seems like there's always money involved. Always. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, it says, In greed they deceive you. It's their greed that motivates them. And it's the same way in Africa. <clears throat> it is the same way in Africa. There's a prophecy church in the Democratic Republic of Congo. I was walking down the street one night, heard this commotion coming over this wall, and I asked my interpreter, what's that? He said, that's the prophecy church. And he says, every Sunday, people come and fill the prophecy church. And the guy who calls himself the prophet tells him, who's going to go to America next? Who's going to get rich next? Who's going to get the nice, nice house next? Who's going to get the next job? Every good buddy goes nuts with excitement, puts money in the offering. They all go home. None of it ever happens, but they're back next week. This, ha- this kind of stuff goes on all the time. All the time. One pastor stood up in front of his congregation, and he says, Ten, twenty, thirty. Ten, twenty, thirty. I had this dream about ten, twenty, thirty, and uh, I didn't know what it meant. And then God told me what it meant. This is a true story. Ten of you are supposed to give, and I'll do the conversion so that you understand. Ten of you are to give the equivalent of five hundred U.S. dollars. Twenty of you are to give the equivalent of two hundred fifty U.S. dollars. Thirty of you are to give the equivalent of hundred. US dollars. Now, if you want God to bless you, I want you so you, you can be one of these, I want you to come forward for prayer. Those who did not come forward for prayer, he looked at them and he says, God has removed his hand of blessing from you. There was a woman in Kenya who claimed to have the power to that God had given her the power to pray for the removal of the AIDS virus from the from a body, and she charged five hundred dollars for a prayer. That's a lot of money in Africa. And she had no end to those paying her for those prayers. And she said, now this is very important, that you go talk to a certain doctor. You go talk to that doctor over there, not that one over there. And he will either confirm or deny that you still have the virus. They'd go there, yeah, you've you've been cured. Well, she was sharing the money with him. So finally one of them went to another doctor, found out that they still had the virus. Told their, other, told their friends, Found they went there, found out they still had the virus. She was arrested, paid bail, got away, walked away with a lot of money. I could go on for a long time telling you stories about how money drives these false teachers in Africa. You saw a picture during the video about Christianity Today and it said Health and wealth in Africa. In that article, it explained that at the time, 85 to 95% of the Pentecostals in three leading countries of Africa believed a prosperity gospel. 85 to 95%. That if you had just enough faith, you'd be healthy and wealthy. So you go around looking for those to, to develop health and wealth. And of course, part of that is, is giving your money. That's part of the faith, one of the faith steps. And so prosperity became a uni- has become a unifying factor, and it started with the Pentecostals, and now everywhere you go in Africa, that is what dominates the conversation. Everywhere I go. Everywhere I go. And it started with the Pentecostals, now it's the, the non-Pentecostals, it started in the cities, now it moved to the rural areas. That is what is driving the church. There was a guy who had a car accident, The pastor told him, you now have the demon of car accidents in your family. You need to go to the super apostle in town and pay him so that that that, uh, demon of car accidents will leave your family. Again, it's all about the money. Paying people, paying people, paying people. And you saw up there on on, uh, the screen about the, the health and wealth preacher and there's a long video that goes along with that we just pulled out a few seconds Uh, but also just a little bit about that 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 ABC special that you saw in the video where it talked about pastors accusing small children of being witches and charging the parents up to six months income to to exorcise quote-unquote demons from these small four and five-year-old children and then 70, it goes on to say, that report, 70% of the homeless kids in the capital city of Kinshasa and the DRC are there because they've been kicked out of their homes being accused of being witches by their parents. We need to be contending earnestly for the faith because this is the result of what happens if we don't. But the truth has always been under attack, right? I mean, right from the beginning, we won't, we won't slow down here. The devil in Genesis 3 questioned the word of God with Eve. Did, did God really say that? Are you sure that's what he said? Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was being tempted, Satan was trying to twist the scriptures to get Jesus to go along with the devil's plan. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. I want to slow down there just for just a, a short minute. Jesus says, beware of the false prophets. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then I like to point out to these men in Africa who are so caught up and so taken in by those who claim dreams and visions and revelations and miracles and healings and all these supernatural things, I said, look at these verses. Verse 21, not everyone who says to be Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 22, many will say say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? In your name perform many miracles? And Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. Just because a person stands in front of you, and I'm talking to them, you already know this. Just because somebody stands in front of you and claims to be healing people and and prophesying and doing miracles doesn't even prove they're saved. That's what Jesus said. Paul warned the Ephesian elders of false teachers. We already looked at that. Paul warned the Corinthians about false prophets in 2 Corinthians 11.13 who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Peter devoted much of his second letter to false teachers, all of chapter 2. Timothy was to confront the false teachers in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 1, 1.3. Titus was to silence the false teachers in Crete. Titus 1.11. I just read recently a book co-authored by Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We come back to biblical authority now. And what got my attention was he spoke to a national uh, conference National Convention for the IFCA International that I was asked last summer, I expected him to give a defense of of Genesis a defense of creation he gave a defense of biblical authority and that caught my attention and so I got a book that he co-authored already gone about a generation of young people who have left the church and why And he goes all the way back to England. And and I'm just going to take a minute or two to tell you this story. He says, here's what happened. In the late 1700s, the Church of England started wavering on a young earth theology, saying, well, maybe the earth is millions of years old, and and we can accommodate that, and we can work with that, and, and it's not that big a deal, we can get along. So they acquiesced on that. They backed away. They tried to be real tolerant of those who might have another view. Right after that, they, well, see, then, then what that did is it gave scientists an excuse to say, the Bible's not accurate. Then right after that, Darwin came along and thought, you know, we've got to come up with a way that all this stuff got here without God, without the creation narrative. And he goes on to tell this story and and, and documents things that happened and points out that in three generations in England and Europe, the church and scripture became irrelevant. And it all started... Was saying, well, you know, six days of creation, and that doesn't really match up with with the scientists, and and you know, they're studying all this stuff, and and Adam and Eve, you know, maybe they weren't real people, and and Noah's flood, maybe it really was just a local flood, it wasn't a universal flood, and so as they started being challenged by scientists, they back away, back away, back away, because they didn't want to be seen as foolish or naive. In three generations. The church in Europe became irrelevant and the Word of God became irrelevant. And it all started with taking a step back from taking Genesis 1 literally. Men and women, the same things happening here. It's happening here. And what happens, he points out, is that our kids are growing up hearing Bible stories. Isn't this a nice little story? And then they go to school and their teacher says, scientists have said that this is really how it happened. So you go to church to hear nice little stories. You go to school to learn science and what the world is all about and biology and geology and astronomy. That's where you get all the knowledge. And so when a child gets old enough and starts weighing all these things in their mind, stories, science, stories, science. And let set aside the stories and hold to science. And it all started, he says, when we backed away from a defense of Genesis 1 and 2 on a literal six-day creation, Adam and Eve are real people. The flood was a worldwide flood, of course. That's Genesis nine, and so he 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 brought me back to to square one. It's all about biblical authority. It's all about biblical authority. There's another indication the truth is under attack. You know, we've talked about some of these things. So we're talking about contending for the faith. And as we start wrapping up here, why? Why is Satan so set on distorting the truth? Very simple. Number one, the truth sets you free. We're talking about salvation now free from the penalty and the power of sin. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32. 32. You will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And he's talking about the penalty and the power of sin. And so Satan doesn't want people to be free. He wants them to remain captive to their sin. So he distorts the gospel, distorts the truth regarding the gospel, and people remain enslaved. To the pe- penalty and the power of sin. And the thing is, like the people in Africa, you go into the churches and they're singing and they're dancing and it acts like they're praising. And they think they are. But it's like they're dancing and singing inside a jail cell. And they don't even know it. And I look at that and men and women, I say, here's the missionary. And I don't, and I. Don't take me, I am not critical of anyone doing any other kind of mission if it's in the name of Christ. It's all important. But I want you to picture this somebody is in jail and they're hungry. And you take a meal and you slide it under the door to feed them. In your pocket is the key to unlock the door and set them free. But all you do is slide the meal under the door to feed them for another day and leave. We have the key to unlock that cell. And we need to use it. So the truth shall set us free. Secondly, the second reason he tries to distort it is because John 17, 17, Sanctify them by thy truth. So the truth sanctifies. It sets us apart from the penalty, the power of sin, and sets us near to God. The sanctification process. And Satan wants to keep Christians from growing spiritually, from being productive, so he distorts the truth so that they don't go through that sanctifying process. The growth process. So while the church is reaching out in obedience, with compassion, to meet the overwhelming number of humanitarian needs around the world, we, the church, can't ignore the fact that in many places, the church is being taken over by demon-inspired false teachers. We can't ignore that. Because it's true. Unbelievers are being drawn into cults. Unbelievers are being given false assurance. Unbelievers are hearing a false gospel. Unbelievers are being led down a blind alley. Pastors are being given wrong priorities. False teachers, false prophets, false apostles are taking advantage of poor, unsuspecting, undiscerning, biblical, illiterate pastors and churchgoers. And on and on and on. And that is not even to talk about those who are still involved in seeking their ancestors for advice. So, in summary, the church needs to take Jude's challenge to heart and be diligent and intentional about contending earnestly for the faith at home, but I think even more so abroad, where there are very few good teachers teaching the Word of God. We do it with gentleness. Kindness as Timothy, as Paul called Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2. Let me just end with this. I'm not suggesting that we abandon any humanitarian efforts to help people anywhere in the world. That's what the church does. But I'm just saying that we need to become very much more aware and intentional about helping to meet these spiritual needs as well. Of course, that's what God has called us to do. You know the story of Joshua and Ai. Great story. They've just defeated Jericho and they get all proud and go out to fight this little village of Ai and get defeated. And they find out it's because of Achan's sin. They take care of the sin. They deal with the sin. And then they go out again. You remember the strategy? The strategy was to put half the army out front, half the army behind A.I., and half the army out front started making all this noise like they were about to attack. The uh, army of A.I. went out to meet them, and the other half of uh, Joshua's army came in the back door of the city and captured the city. That's a great strategy, and that's a strategy that I think Satan is using. Because he's got us focusing all our attentions on the humanitarian needs. And men and women, they are great. And I want to say again, we need to be involved in those. But we're leaving the back door open. And while we're paying attention to those humanitarian needs, as we should, we're not paying attention to the false teachers coming in the back door and taking over the pulpits and leading the people astray. So that's what I say, that we need to be contending earnestly for the faith everywhere. And God has called us to do that on the continent of Africa. Let's pray. Father, it is a warfare. And we need to understand that. We really do. We can get so comfortable in our Christianity and forget that there are people being held captive in the fortresses built with Satan's lies. So Lord, I just pray that we would do what we can do, and we can't do it all, but that we would do what we can do to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago at uh...